episode 386, What You Need to Know About ER Bills Post the No Surprises Act. Today, I speak with Al Lewis. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. First of all, let me thank those of you who have left a podcast review in 2022. There was one from Best Healthcare Podcast Around on Apple Podcasts the other day that thanked Relentless Health Value for being singularly responsible for providing a 400-level education in so many complex areas of healthcare, which I personally really appreciated because we aspire to be a masterclass in healthcare industry strategy such that those looking to do right by patients understand the dynamics well enough to succeed. This also echoed a review from February of this year that said that Relentless Health Value distills complex healthcare issues into a highly intuitive and highly accessible narrative that helped the reviewer's Fortune 500 company get everybody in the C-suite the understanding needed to confidently make some pretty key healthcare-related decisions. Thanks so much to those of you who left a review for taking the time. As I have said on earlier shows, we really have a relentless tribe here working hard to make the healthcare industry in this country much more accountable to the patients that we serve. And you leaving a rating and a review might be the best thing that you can do if you're into helping us achieve our mission because the ratings are so entwined with helping others find the show. If you consider yourself a listener who has gained value from the show and you haven't yet left a review or a rating, could I ask that you do me a favor and do so? If you don't know how to do that and you click in the show notes, there is a link to instructions for how to do so. Today, I am talking with Al Lewis. Al has been on the show before. One thing I did not realize about Al is that he went to Harvard Law School. Today, we are discussing using the Quizify consent form. In the emergency room, this Quizify consent form quite simply gives patients convenient ways to remember the exact and specific words they need to write on any financial forms they are presented with and told to sign in the emergency room. These words negate a hospital system or ER staffing firm's claims that the patient agreed in a blanket statement to pay whatever they are charged. In the past, i.e. before the surprise billing legislation that went into effect at the beginning of 2022, this Quizify consent form helped prevent the old $11,000 COVID test somebody got in the emergency room or the million-dollar heart attack. For more on the legislation itself, listen to the show with Lauren Adler, episode 307. While it is far from perfect in a few respects, on the whole, the No Surprise Act is good for patients. It's been terribly bad news, however, for certain private equity-backed ER staffing organizations who used surprise billing as a business model, meaning specifically, and maybe there's others, but Team Health and Envision are certainly the big dogs here. This wasn't any sort of cloaked-in-the-shadow secret, by the way, as far as business models for these two entities. I recall one of them saying without equivocation that the No Surprises Act would be very detrimental to their business. And it turns out they were right. Here's from Fierce Healthcare, quoting Moody's, Envision faces serious social risk due to significant negative publicity relating to patients 
receiving surprise medical bills, and will remain financially challenged by the No Surprises Act. Moody's downgraded Envision's corporate debt, suggesting that they are at risk of going bankrupt over the next 12 to 18 months. To further attenuate my sympathies, both of these companies, Team Health and Envision, cut doctors' pay during the first COVID-19 wave while simultaneously spending millions on political ads to protect surprise billing practices. Anyway, sad, not sad. Getting back on track here. The good news in all of this is that patients don't have to worry about surprise bills either by private equity-backed entities or just your run-of-the-mill hospital down the street who pre-No Surprises Act were not opposed to a little surprise billing action of their own or not opposed enough to do anything about out-of-network docs sending these bills in a lot of cases. But the No Surprises Act doesn't make going to the ER a safe space from a financial standpoint for patients or their employers. And this is what I talk about today with Al Lewis. This whole conversation reminded me of something that David Contorno has said more than once. Every hospital bill, every physician bill is a surprise bill if the patient does not know ahead of time what the charges will be. You've listened to this podcast before and heard guest after guest talk about how payers, frankly, not so good at negotiating with hospitals, most of whom have emergency rooms. If you're a patient and you go to the ER, you're going to see this lack of great negotiating in all of its glory. So, for example, if a payer, in air quotes, negotiated $10,000 for an emergency MRI or CT scan or some other test or service, and the patient has cost sharing, yeah, that patient just got hit with a very, very big bill. Or the whole upcoding thing. This whole thing is what I talk about with Al Lewis today. Post No Surprises Act, what's happening in emergency rooms and how can we protect patients, members, employees from excessive financial toxicity that is still rampant when it comes to going to the emergency room in many cases. Al talks about how the employers can really help employees and members protect themselves from profiteering hospitals or physician staffing companies the patient doesn't even realize are going to be sending bills. Go to the show notes where there's a link where you can get and learn more about the Quizify consent form as well as Quizify's doctor visit prep kits. Another episode along these lines to listen to is episode 328 with Marshall Allen. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Al Lewis, welcome back to Relentless Health Value. Thank you once again for having me. I haven't scared you away yet. It is always my pleasure. So maybe let's start by digging into what the evolving problem is. Because when we first started talking, the issue at that time was around surprise bill. Now we have the surprise bill legislation. So after this legislation, are we done with surprise bills? The legislation, the No Surprises Act, it has worked in the sense that it's a deterrent to things like the $11,000 COVID vaccine. You don't see any large bills in the newspaper anymore. So it's been excellent at curbing those large excesses. The two issues with it are first, you as the patient, as the employee, have to trigger it. If in fact you think you've been overcharged, it, during the first, through August 11th, so basically the first seven and a half months of the year, there were 40,000 triggers, which was more, much more than was expected. Only 1,200 have actually made it to arbitration, and of those, 600 have been challenged. So yes, it's been great at the deterrent effect, but the actual law itself still has a way to go. So the, the point of the No Surprises Act was to curb the ginormous out-of-network charges 
that patients were getting in the ER. And as you said, the $11,000 COVID shot, the million dollar heart attack. So the patient gets wheeled in an ambulance unconscious to an ER. They obviously weren't able to shop for an in-network emergency room. And then they get hit with this absolutely flagrant out-of-network charge that bankrupts their family. So that was the situation that the No Surprises Act was supposed to deal with. And to your point, what the recourse is, a patient or an employee, as you say, triggers the law. That's correct. I would add a couple of things. You trigger it to find the in-network charge. Ah. And therein lies the rub, my friend. In-network ER charges, when I say four to 10 times Medicare, that's for in-network. Forget about out-of-network. I don't ever, you know, 10 to 100 times Medicare. But the so-called reasonable charge is vastly higher as a multiple of Medicare, which is a good benchmark, than a typical in-network hospital uh, procedure would be. When you say in-network, those are the negotiated rates. So if I'm an employee, I have insurance, I have pick a carrier, right? My insurance carrier has negotiated a price for that emergency room code, and I am still getting charged a large number that could be many times over Medicare. That's what we're talking about here. That's correct. And there's two very specific reasons why emergency care, whether it's emergency admits or emergency room, is a much higher multiple of Medicare than elective care. One is that elective care tends to be high volume procedures and some insurance companies, some carriers are, or in employers are quite good at negotiating direct charges for normal delivery, C-section, hip replacements, the, the well-defined items. So that's thing one. Thing two is that the emergency care is covered by the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act of 1986, which means you can't get turned away from an ER because they don't like the way you're paying or they think you can't pay at all. So it's a very, it was an important bill at the time because there were a lot of what they call wallet biopsies going on in emergency rooms. And people were always being transferred to the public hospital and they would die along the way sometimes. So it was a great law, but like many great laws, it had unforeseen consequences. The unforeseen consequence was that when it came to negotiating with carriers, the hospitals would say, we have to charge a lot to the insured patients because we have so many uninsured people we have to cover. Well, you need the hospital in your network, and they're probably negotiating much better deals for procedures. So as an insurer, you just go along with it. There are very few insurers and very few employers that have direct contracts for emergency care. And frankly, it wouldn't matter that much anyway, because if you're having an emergency, you probably just go to the nearest hospital. The point being that these rates continue to be high, even if it's in-network care, because for a number of different reasons, many carriers haven't done a great job negotiating with the hospitals and or the hospitals have reasons for keeping that care high. None of this is great, however, if you have to happen to be an insured patient going to an emergency room because you still could wind up with a, I just heard the other day, someone got charged like $30,000 for a rabies shot, which was the in-network um, price, maybe just because nobody took a look at how much a rabies shot costs while they were negotiating the contract, I'm assuming. Something like that. So it's a little like if you have a contract with Uber, 
and it's a rainy night in Georgia, you're going to be paying a, a, what they call a surge price. And you don't have any negotiating leverage. And that's the way it is with emergency rooms and carriers. The other advantage for a hospital to have very high ER rates is that if they write off anything, they can count it towards charity care. So the higher the ER charge, if they have uninsured patients or even insured patients in some cases, that enables them to allocate more dollars to their charitable contributions, right? If you charge $50,000 for something, that counts as $50,000 with a charity care. Whereas if you charge 2X Medicare, which is a tenth of that or whatever, then that's far less that can be attributed to your charitable contribution. Yes. Yeah, so there are many reasons, and you just named sort of number three, I named the first two, why ER bills in network are so high and why therefore even under with the No Surprises Act, the quote unquote reasonable charge you're going to pay is still going to be high. So three reasons why hospitals are able to negotiate some really high in-network ER charges are that number one, carriers slash plan sponsors aren't really focused on the ER codes in their negotiations. They have other fish to fry. Number two, it's kind of a surge pricing scenario where even if you as a hospital have, a, have super high ER prices, Patients are going to come to your ER anyway if you're the closest hospital to their emergency. And number three, high ER charges are an easy way to jack up charitable care contributions and other fun with accounting activities. If used, the Quizify consent form can hold the charge that a patient might be on the hook for to 2x Medicare as opposed to whatever the in-network charge happens to be. How does that work? That's because of the emergency medical, it's EMTALA mentioned before, the Emergency Medical Treatment Act will abbreviate as EMTALA from now on. The ER can, when they look at your consent, when you've written in these 29 words, or when you have them on the back of your insurance card, they only have two choices. One is that they accept your consent, which has happened essentially 99% of the time at this point. Hospitals know that they need to abide by this law. They know they need to treat you. And the very specific reason, Stacy, that we pick two times Medicare instead of one times Medicare is were this ever to go to court, and it's been a couple of years because you were an early user of it yourself. If it were to go to court, you want to be able to have a reasonable price that you offer to pay. And it's not reasonable to say you want to pay the same price as their largest payer. So the 29 words that you're talking about that would either be amended on the financial document that everybody gets jammed in their face when they go to any medical facility, not just the emergency room, but certainly in the emergency room, or you have a sticker that you can stick on the back of an insurance card. You also have things that are available that you can stick in your Apple watch or Apple phone wallet. I'm sure there's a Android equivalent. Oh, yeah. But the 29 words are basically... I solemnly swear that I will pay you 2x Medicare, like period. Yes, actually, that would be what, four or five words. The 29 words, the consent is very concisely written. So the first three words are superseding other consents. That's in case you accidentally sign theirs. Then it says, I agree, including insurance. That's another issue. We still have to get to how insurance is now on the, is still on the hook for this, even if you don't pay their rate including insurance, to be responsible for all charges up to two times Medicare. And that's the crooks of it right there. Upon receipt of an itemized bill, and that by itself is an impediment, is something the hospitals don't like to do, but for appropriate treatment, 
That means they can't just throw whatever treatments they want at you and expect you to pay them. Coded at the correct level. That part is because they do have a way of upcoding hugely. And I had a friend who had a scratch on his elbow that looked like it was getting infected and it was after hours. He couldn't go to urgent care. He went to the ER. Nurse looks at it and says, nope, uh, not infected, but in case it is, here's a prescription. If it looks like it getting infected, start the antibiotics. Took his blood pressure, sent him home, got billed for level three for what was clearly a level one. And we got it knocked back to level one. So it sounds like what the card does is it kind of ticks through the most common culprits relative to how people have been, I was going to say screwed, you know. how You can say screwed, it's your podcast. (laughs) By hospitals. One of them is just flat out charging a whole lot of money for something. That's number one. Number two, again, as you said, the appropriate treatment. Somebody comes in with something that is relatively minor and winds up with three CAT scans or things that are clearly excessive. Number three, coded at the correct level. You hear this all the time where not just in ERs, again, this is sometimes even in, in physician visits. And if somebody upcodes, it's a form of upcoding, basically. Oh, it is. It, pure upcoding. Those 29 words just checks off all of the most common reasons why people get bills in excess of what might be expected in the ER. Yes. Now, the crooks is that two times Medicare thing. The other things are all in there just to discourage the hospital from chasing the patient. And or, as you said, if this does happen to go to court, there is a document which addresses these items. Yeah. So it's not just if it were to go to court, I would just bet it's never going to go to court. If it were to go to court, It's all about the two times Medicare, but suddenly the hospital has to then defend itself against three or four other things. That's why those other things are in there. So this is what I would be interested in you explaining. All right, I'm a patient and I'm a member of an insurance plan. My insurance carrier has negotiated a rate, right? That's 10X Medicare, whatever. If I go into the ER with this card, I am basically saying, I'm going to negotiate my own rate with you I'm not going to use my insurer's rate, but I still want to be covered by insurance. How does that all work? Very simply, you have an offer, a deal with the insurance company. Doesn't matter what the hospital, there's nothing, unless your insurance company contract said, you must pay our negotiated rate no matter how high it is. You are perfectly free, whether it's emergency care or elective care, to negotiate your own rate. And if the insurance or your employer, self-insured, whatever, says we cover this at 80%, they pay 80, you pay 20. There's no obligation for you to get pay a higher t- gross amount in order to trigger that 20%. So I could do that with your average MRI too. Like if my oh, insurance negotiated $3,200 for this MRI, I could go in and tell them I want to pay 500 and... Yeah, in fact, that, well, first of all, they can tell you to take a hike because it's elective. But many of these places say, you know, if you pay cash, and you deal with the insurance yourself, we'll give you you a discount. Now, that may be a violation of their contract with the insurance company, but it's not a violation of your contract to turn around and submit that claim and say, I just got an MRI, MRIs are covered 80%. I want my 400 out of that $500 back. For an emergency room visit, how is me negotiating my own charges with the hospital for emergency procedures not something that a hospital is going to push back hard on because they say that it's a violation of their insurance contract. Very specifically because of EMTALA. If there were no EMTALA, they could absolutely do that. EMTALA, federal law trumps any contract between a provider and carrier or whatever. 
if I negotiate for 2X Medicare and my charges are, you know, there's a $100 copay if I go to the emergency room and then it's 20% of charges after that or whatever my deductible is. Basically, the plan design of the plan that I have, I'd still pay the whatever copay and then I still would pay whatever percentage of the bill that the hospital charges and the hospital would need to figure that out with the insurance company. Exactly. They still submit the claim same as they otherwise would. It's that simple. And we we have a, in case, sometimes because maybe, I don't know, one in a thousand, one in 10,000 people are using this. The ERs have a very routinized billing process. And one of the things that we recommend is on the way out of the ER, you remind the ER on the way out, oh, by the way, write down that this is how I'm, I'm paying for this. And we have, a, as I say, we have a service that will take care of it if they don't, but it's much easier just to cut it off right there. And it definitely feels like hospitals and even physician offices are getting wise to stuff like this. You know, I was at a doctor recently who had a sign out front, you're not allowed to change the the financial forms. And I've seen that on ER documents as well. It doesn't matter what signs they put around, this all still works. It's federal law. They can say, they're basically saying, we don't, we don't abide by federal law. Good luck with that. Now, what they can do, and like I say, no ER is done to my, and I would know about it, no ER is done to my knowledge in the two plus years we've been using this. What they can do is say, we don't accept your consent. We'll call you for treatment in minutes in the ER. They have to treat you exactly the same way. And that's what would trigger the going to court, which hasn't happened. Now, there, there were a couple where I thought might go to court and I was looking forward to it, but the hospital's caves. Essentially, it gets kicked up the chain of command and they realize if they go to court and it is found against them, which is very likely, and that gets out, which is very likely, they basically capped all their emergency services at two times Medicare. Yeah. And there's a whole chapter in Marshall Allen's book, Never Pay the First Bill, on going to small claims court. And it was interesting reading that chapter, thinking like a patient, how it is a problem for a hospital to wind up in small claims court. So it actually is leverage there. It absolutely is leverage and it might not even be small claims court. And yes, Marshall Allen actually has the consent in his book. We're completely aligned on this. One question, Stacy, that people always ask me is, how come you're the only person who's thought of this? And to which I answer, number one, it was actually Marty McCary who spurred the thought. He says, don't sign their consent. So when Marty brought this up, light bulb went off. No one else. I don't think there's any other vendor out there where the CEO graduated from Harvard Law School with a concentration in healthcare law. A better question is, why don't other vendors copy it? It wouldn't, they could. And the language is out there. Anybody can use the language. We run into people all the time. It's, oh yeah, I've got it on my phone. Great for them. What they don't have is they don't have the 24-7 service. They don't have the rebilling. They don't have the geofencing to remind them that when they're in the ER, there's a little ping and the thing will pop up on your phone. None of that stuff. From Quizify's perspective, you've got the free version that people can just copy and use if they remember. But then the paid service does all the things that you were talking about with the geofencing so that if someone is in the proximity of an ER that the thing pops up just to remind them to, to use this, et cetera. So there's some bells and whistles that you can pay for. There are a lot of bells and whistles. And I know the geofencing works because I don't know whose idea this was, but on Martha's Vineyard, the bike path goes within 50 or 100 feet of the ER. And I can hear the ping 
in my pannier <laughs> as the phone is going on. The other thing besides the rebilling and the 24-7 service and the legal backup and the instructions and the geofencing is that we also have this for our routine visits where for 165 reasons to go to the doctor, we basically guide you through the trip. Plenty of like direct primary care, plenty of folks are trying to improve the doctor-patient interaction from the point of view of the doctor. I believe we are the only people who have figured out how to do it from the point of view of the patient. So you missed that too. Now, having said all that, just if you write down these 29 words and you remember that you have them, use them. I put them in the public domain. I don't think we could have kept them out, but very happy to have them in the public domain. So does any of this have a big bearing on hospital finances? And I'm not talking about predatory, those predatory freestanding emergency rooms that are all but out of business right now because they basically, admittedly, they even went lobbying in Congress saying that their business model depended on surprise billing. So not talking about those entities. But if I'm just your regular hospital, if there are a number of employers in the area that get a hold of this Quizify card, they do the geofencing. So every employee that is going into that ER, let's just say hypothetically, is using this card and keeping down the emergency room charges. How big of a profit center is the emergency room? And does this start negatively impacting? And I put that in air quotes because obviously there's a lot of lobbying relative to how much money our hospitals actually making or not making. But how does this impact hospital finances? I would love, love, Stacey, to have this problem where enough employers are using Quizify that hospitals have to go beg for regulatory relief. So do you happen to know how much the ER contributes to a hospital's bottom line? I don't know. I can't give you chapter and verse, but I can tell you that emergency care is very profitable, largely because of not just the multiples for the ER itself, but when you admit somebody through the ER, your employer, your carrier is much less likely to have been able to negotiate a rate for the type of emergency admission that comes in than they have been for the type of elective admission that comes in. So that's where the money is. And they, you see it. I've seen it many places that many elective procedures are negotiated by large employers or sometimes carriers at less than one times Medicare. There's a lot of action on this front. Like you see what's going on in North Carolina, for example, which is this Medical Debt Deweaponization Act. And if you consider that certainly not all, but a lot of medical debt starts out in the ER, what this legislation does is it requires hospitals to offer financial assistance to patients based on their income and then also limit the way that these medical facilities and debt collectors can pursue unpaid bills. Between the, you can't charge more than 2X Medicare, also, you actually have to proactively offer financial assistance because one of the things that was coming out was that certain hospitals were, it's hard to imagine it wasn't deliberate at some level. <laughs> if it wasn't deliberate, it was certainly well-coordinated accident, but they were not offering financial assistance, right? So like some person who was at the poverty level or 4X the poverty level, whatever the limit is to offer financial assistance was in the ER. They could have gotten financial assistance and still the hospital was going after them for the full amount of the bill and not mentioning this. So it sounds like there's a number of a constellation of forces that we have here kind of addressing the same thing, that there are excessive emergency room bills, and this is really negatively impacting patients. 
Let's take North Carolina. The hospitals there, I don't even know how it's even legal for them to all conspire. And this is what you just described is a, it's not a seatbelt. It's a, it's what you do after the accident kind of thing. And as far as that goes, I think it's a fine piece of legislation, but it'd be much better to, to nip it in the bud. They can't legislate that employees or that people only have to pay two times Medicare, but they could for their state employees and the municipal ones coming along that say, Here's our card. It's two times Medicare. It's geofenced. Use it. it. You probably know in North Carolina, probably more than any other state, it's been concerned about the hospital costs impact on its own employees, unbalancing the entire budget. Is there any potential downside here that we need to watch out for? I hired a food taster. If this gets big enough that there's some kind of downside that, and they figure out some way to, I would, first of all, I'd be very surprised. They'd have to get the law EMTALA repealed in some way. There are things that ERs do that we hear about sometimes that are just not legal. We got a panic call from somebody who said the ER didn't ask them to, that they were all set to use the consent. The ER never asked them to sign a consent. And then when they were all done, the ER said, you consented verbally. And they said, no, I didn't. And what we advise them in that case is we don't give legal advice. And we're very clear about that. And we can kick it up to Doug Aldean or somebody who can. But we said, you just show them the consent on your phone and say, no, this is what I would have signed if you asked me to sign. Sorry. And that ended it because if you can show that, in fact, you and they did not have a meeting of the minds on what they were going to charge you and that you fully intended to pay this two times Medicare thing, there's not a thing they can do about that. And when you say ended it, does that mean the hospital is just like, okay, paid in full, we're done? Yeah, they cave, they cave. Ended it, What I mean, it means they, they accept the two times Medicare. So it sounds like the main gist of what you're saying is just use the card. So if you're in the ER, just use the card. Because if you do that, then you are arming yourself in probably the best possible way to make sure that you have recourse should you get slapped with a bill that is too high. Yes, and there's actually seven steps and you just named the most important There's another one, take a picture of what you put in. And we put that in caps because one person didn't take a picture and then asked for a copy of the bill and the ER whited out their consent when they sent the bill. (laughs) So uh, a copy of the form, a copy of the uh, consent. Now the ER did such a lousy job whiting out the consent that you could still see some of the letters. So if it had been me, I would have said, we're going to take this, we're going to blow this whole thing up unless you do this for zero. We just had somebody Friday use the consent and they showed it to the person in the ER and the intake person said, quote unquote, oh, that's smart. They get it. Many of them do already. And the ones that don't get it too bad for them because it's federal law. What if I come in on a stretcher? What if I come in and I've had a heart attack or something like that and I do not have this taped to my chest, right? What do I do in that circumstance? Okay, there's two things. One is hopefully you came in with somebody else. Number two, if you didn't, this is why we urged companies to put this right on their insurance card so that you don't actually physically have to do the work. And number three, and this is more of a Quizify thing, we only tell we tell people you're gonna get twenty to thirty percent use because between the people coming in on the stretcher and the people who forget and the people who didn't download it, they're gonna be the large majority. Having said that, the savings are so great on any ER visit. Forgetting about ER admissions, where the percent savings are lower, but the dollar savings are much higher. 
So this is also something that not just a patient can use, but at the em- employer level, obviously, this is something like you could print on people's insurance cards. You could hand out stickers for people to put on their insurance card. This is certainly something that can be done at the employer level also. Absolutely. We actually have a whole bunch of stickers ourselves. And when we get together sometimes with an employer, we just give them the stickers. But ideally, they put it right on the card. Where can people go to get more information about the card or if somebody wants to download it or if I'm an employer and I'm looking for this, where can I get more info? We have a free version for the use of, I think you have it actually, the use of folks like you, friends of Quizify, people who want to kick tires. And if you just write to al at quizify.com, two Z's in Quizify, we will happily send you that. And that's probably the easiest way to, uh, to kick the tires. Al, thank you so much for coming back on Relentless Health Value and talking about the latest updates. Thank you, as always. So let's talk about going over to our website and typing your email address in the box to get the weekly email about the show that has come out. Sometimes people don't do that because they have subscribed on iTunes or Spotify and or were friends on LinkedIn. What you get in that email is a full and unredacted, unedited version of the whole introduction of the show transcribed. There's also show notes with timestamps. So you get everything that you need to decide if you want to listen or not. Just apprising you of the options that are available. Thanks so much for listening.